Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice at the supporting sponsor of Oncofarm, the Bill Gadd College of Pharmacy. It's April 22nd. We're in our fourth or fifth week of, of quarantine, and the FDA has not been slowed down by working at home in the Zoom meetings. Uh, they have been approving drugs at a pretty rapid clip, especially this week. So we have, I think it's five new pharmaceutical formulations to talk about uh, on today's pod. So let's just get right into it. April 22nd, FDA approved uh, Secutuzumab, Govitecan, uh, in the third line metastatic setting for triple negative breast cancer. Now, uh, Secutuzumab is a trope 2 monoclonal antibody linked to Govitecan, which we know better as SN38, the main active metabolite of irinotecan. And this is a fairly loaded armored monoclonal antibody with about 7.6 SN38 molecules per uh, secutuzumab uh, antibody. Now, trope 2 is uh, trophoblastic cell surface antigen 2, which is a transmembrane uh, calcium signal transducer uh, that's overexpressed in a lot of epithelial cancers, and then presumably a lot of just epithelial cells. Uh, it's expressed on a lot of epithelial cells, but overexpressed on many epithelial cancers, including breast cancer, uh, and it stimulates cancer cell growth. Now, uh, interestingly, trope 2 levels are actually a little bit higher in hormone-positive HER2-negative breast cancer cell lines. That comes from uh, the Gerald's uh, lab at Roswell Park, published in Clinical Cancer Research in 2005. So using this in a triple-negative uh, population is a population that appears to have lower trope 2 levels than the, the kind of the standard breast cancer population, which is ER, PR positive HER2 and amplified, which is which has a little bit higher level. So why look at this drug in triple negative breast cancer? Well, an unmet need, which is um, uh, by the in the FDA's eyes, where there is no established standard of care, third line uh, setting for triple negative breast cancer, which means that you could get approved via the accelerated approval program, which is exactly what this drug did, based on a single-arm study with 102 patients showing an overall response rate of 33%. Won't get into a whole lot in the baseline demographics on a single-arm study, because what can you really tell from this, except that this drug has activity in these patients. Uh, but I will say that only 17% of these patients had a prior treatment with immunotherapy, and now we're seeing you know the established benefit of immunotherapy up front in folks with triple-negative breast cancer. Um, now, the way this drug works, as you probably guess, is it binds to trope 2 and then is internalized. And in uh, that, uh, that lysosome, that endocytosis pocket, uh, SN38 is released, um, which then inhibits topoisomerase 1, leading to single-strand DNA breaks and cell death. Now, the, there's a pH-dependent linker that connects SN38 with the antibody. And when you think of linkers, there are really uh, sticky linkers that are really hard uh, to break apart and very weak linkers that break apart easily and this falls somewhere in the middle of that. It is pH dependent so it should only break or hydrolyze in an acidic environment such as inside the tumor cell or the tumor microenvironment but this one uh, was designed to, to break apart you know easier than maybe it could have been uh, which makes you think you're going to have a decent amount of systemic exposure. Um, in fact, if you look at uh, the Irenatekin package insert and you look at uh, you know a standard 125 milligrams per meter squared weekly uh, or a dose, uh, the SN3 AUC up to 24 hours is 229 units. And the same units, uh, if you look at 10 mg per kg of uh, secutuzumab govitecan, the AUC up to 24 days is more, than, uh, is more than 10 times that. So there certainly is a decent 
uh, systemic exposure of, of SN38. And that's exposure of SN38 in the ironotecan PA, not ironotecan. Actually, SN38. Um, so there is, I, I think, a legitimate question um, about uh, what if we just used ironotecan? In these patients, and there has ironotecan has been studied. There's a Prez and colleagues in JCO in 2004. There's a phase two study of ironotecan in breast cancer patients who are anthracycline and taxane refractory, and they all had one to three prior lines of uh, uh, therapy. Um, now we don't know the percentage of patients that were triple negative uh, in that study, uh, but they received 100 milligrams per meter squared weekly of ironotecan, and that's the whole population of breast cancer patients, and had an overall response rate of 23%. So what that is, in a triple negative population, would only be speculating, but 23%, I would say, is in the ballpark of the 33% objective response rate we see with this new drug. Um, as far as how the drug is given, it's IV. It's administered 10 mg per kg IV days 1 and 8 of a Q21 day cycle. The first dose... Uh, is over three hours and then required 30-minute observation periods. And then if everything goes well, subsequent doses can be given over one to two hours with also a 30-minute observation period. And that has to do with a risk of hypersensitivity reactions. About 37% of people have a reaction within 24 hours. And the package insert says to have emergency equipment available for immediate use when this drug is given. And as you might guess, there are some suggested pre-medications, an antipyretic like acetaminophen, an H1, an H2 receptor antagonist, uh, let's say uh, diphenhydramine, and let's do famotidine. We won't do ranitidine anymore. And then, quote, steroids may be used if a prior reaction has occurred. Uh, additional pre-medications include drugs to prevent chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, DEX, 5-HG3, maybe an NK1 antagonist. Nausea occurred in 69% of patients in uh, receiving this drug and vomiting in 41%. Uh, and I'm not sure how many of those 49% vomited after already been giving drugs to prevent vomiting. Um, uh, there are dose adjustments for... Um, Potential dose adjustments for moderate or severe hepatic impairment, but has not been studied. But my guess is based on SN38 and how it's glucuronidated and eliminated in the bile that there certainly would be if you have an elevated bilirubin. But what we do know from the PI is that mild hepatic impairment, and this is a bilirubin up to one and a half times the upper limit normal, uh, those patients had similar uh, SN38 exposure as people, as people with normal uh, liver function. There are two box warnings for this, um, and they're maybe what you would expect for a target for a, an antibody drug conjugate using the active metabolite of ironotecan. It's severe neutropenia and diarrhea. Uh, so there is a whole parameter uh, for ANC 1500 or less, or 1000 if it's the day 8 dose. 64% uh, of patients had some degree of neutropenia, 43% of that being grade 3 or 4. So that's an ANC less than 1,000 or 500. Uh, now, neutropenia is the, the primary modality of myelosuppression with this drug. Thrombocytopenia was seen in 14%, and only 3% uh, had a grade 3 or 4 thrombocytopenia. PI recommends to consider GCSF for secondary prophylaxis for episodes of neutropenic fever. One thing to keep in mind here, SN38 has a fairly long half-life, about 18 hours. Um, so when you think about when you would do your GCSF, you know, maybe closer to the 48-hour window than the 24-hour window after you get the dose. Uh, the other boxed warning is for diarrhea, and the PI recommends loperamide, 4 milligrams to start, and then 2 milligrams at every loose stool, up to a max of 16 milligrams a day. Recall that some of the older uh, labeled information for irentigan had much higher doses of, of uh, loperamide uh, up to 48 hours 
they do also advocate for anticholinergics for those that have the cholinergic storm. Again, typical ironetican toxicity. Uh, diarrhea happened in 63%, uh, 9% of that being a grade 3 or 4. Uh, so think of it that way. If you say a grade 3 toxicity, now this could just be like 8 bowel movements a day, but grade 3 could also be hospitalization due to dehydration from the diarrhea. Uh, that's 9%. That's 1 in 10, so fairly fairly prevalent. Um, there is also a warning about uh, patients with UGT1A1 polymorphisms, again, typical story with ironotecan. What is a little disappointing to me is the uh, approval uh, and label for liposomal ironotecan has pharmacogenetic guided dosing for UGT1A1 homozygous polymorphisms for STAR28. We don't have that for this. Um, you, you'd love to see that as an accelerated approval. It does need uh, or might need a, a confirmatory phase 3 study. You would love to see that phase 3 study have uh, pharmacogenetic guided dosing. Uh, and then, you know, this sounds basically just like normal ironotecan toxicity, with the exception of the hypersensitivity reactions, which is probably uh, the sacituzumab. So when we think of, you know, t traditional chemo, other toxicities besides myelosuppression, besides nausea and vomiting, we think about mucositis, 14% with sacituzumab, govotecan, alopecia, 38%, uh, rash, 31%. And, you know, once this drug's on the market for a while, someone will probably do a uh, sacituzumab, govotecan versus ironotecan in this setting. And uh, maybe we could make bets to see if it shows superiority versus ironotecan. Okay, uh, the next drug I want to talk about, I've got to shuffle through a whole lot of notes here to get, get to all this stuff. Man, so much stuff. Uh, the next one I want to talk about is uh, tucatinib, which is a HER2 tar uh, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Uh, approved based on the her to climb uh, study, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, in February of this year. February of this year. Like two and a half months ago, this was published. Doesn't that seem like a lifetime ago? My gosh. Um, there are a couple interesting things about this. So I'm going to go into this in some detail, this study. But we're going to come back and talk about the drug interactions, increased creatinine, and metformin. And yes, we will talk about diarrhea with this drug. Um, now, this is not the time or the place to, to really get into, um, you know, covering up recent updates in, in breast cancer with the, the sacituzumab approval and a whole bunch of dirextecan. There's a whole bunch of stuff been going on lately in HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. Neratinib's approval recently. So I'm going to try uh, and be brief here. Uh, so HER2-CLIMB, which is the pivotal study that got tucatinib approved um, uh, recently, uh, was a, a comparison of um, patients uh, receiving—I've got my notes mixed up here. This is not good. Oh, so they were receiving uh, trastuzumab, uh, tucatinib, or capecitabine versus just trastuzumab, uh, tucatinib. Uh, sorry, TTC, trastuzumab, tucatinib, capecitabine versus trastuzumab, Capecitabine. Now, these patients were heavily pretreated with prior um, HER2 drugs. 100% had trastuzumab, 100% pertuzumab, 100% uh, TDM1. Um, now, this is in comparison to the NALA study, which hasn't been published yet, but got neratinib's approval for metastatic HER2 uh, amplified breast cancer. That was just neratinib capecitabine versus lapatinib capecitabine. No trastuzumab on either arm, and there's a very well established uh, you know, literature of trastuzumab beyond progression, having activity beyond compared to not extending trastuzumab. So I think it's nice that HER2-CLIMB has that trastuzumab backbone in both arms. However, I think a fair comparison would have been TTC, uh, 
So tucatinib plus trastuzumab capecitabine versus lapatinib plus trastuzumab capecitabine. In any event, that's not how they did it. Uh, there was a uh, statistically significant improvement in median progression-free survival, 7.8 months versus 5.6. Uh, there was also a statistically significant improvement in median overall survival, 21.9 months versus 17.4 months. So four and a half improvement in median overall survival. These Kaplan-Meier curves um, are, are, are separated the whole time. The PFS curves actually widen over time. So there, there definitely is some activity here compared to uh, a comparator arm that's capecitabine, trastuzumab, but no uh, other TKI, which would have been a fairer comparison, of course. Now, when we look at our toxicities between the two groups here, there was more diarrhea in the ducatinib arm, 81%, 13% of that being, um, uh, being grade 3 or 4. Now, you're going to say, well, trastuzumab causes diarrhea, capecitabine causes diarrhea. What's the comparison group? 54% in the comparison group versus 81%, so a lot of diarrhea. Now, the HER2-CLIMB protocol, which you can find on in the supplementary material for any JM, uh, says prophylactic antidiarrheal is not required, but may be but may be permitted. Uh, so we don't really know, you know how many folks uh, re you know, required that uh, up front. Um, Hand-foot syndrome, 63% versus 53%, about the same. Vomiting, 36% in the tucatinib arb, which makes this regimen mech, technically. Um, Transaminitis in 20%, 5% of that being grade 3 or 4. Quote, hepatotoxicity in 42%. Uh, arthralgia is in 15%, and that was higher than 4.6% arthralgia in the trastuzumab capecitabine arm. And then peripheral neuropathy, puzzlingly, in 13% in the experimental group. A little bit more about um, tucatinib. Um, it is a uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor that blocks HER2 and HER3. And this is different than neratinib, which blocks uh, EGFR, HER2 and HER4. They both target HER2, but they have some different collateral damage there. Uh, and because neratinib blocks EGFR1, that's probably the mechanism why it has greater diarrhea. Um, tucatinib is uh, dosed at 300 milligrams BID uh, with or without food. Uh, and that's uh, either two 150 milligram tablets or six 50 milligram tablets. And the first dose reduction is down to 250, so maybe the 50 milligram tablets make some sense. Uh, the capecitabine dosing is 1,000 milligrams per meter squared, and then standard trastuzumab dosing. Now, if we contrast that versus neratinib, which has a similar approval in the third-line setting with capecitabine for uh, HER2-amplified um, breast cancer, uh, the dosing there is, is also six tablets to get your 240 a day. It's 21 days on, seven days off. Uh, compared to tucatinib, which is continuous dosing. Uh, neratinib requires administration with food, whereas tucatinib is not. Neratinib is once a day, tucatinib is twice a day. Uh, the dosing of neratinib with capecitabine actually is a lower dose of capecitabine, 750 milligrams per meter squared. And then, of course, neratinib requires loperamide prophylaxis. Uh, there are, you know, you know, you decrease the starting dose if you have child PUC liver dysfunction. There are dose adjustments for hepatic toxicity. Um, there's some other uh, differences which uh, seemed more important, like I'd have more time to get into when I put this together earlier in the week, but now there's just so much to talk about with all these drugs. Um, so tucatinib and neratinib both have warning precaution statements in the PI4, diarrhea, hepatotoxicity, and uh, embryo-fetal toxicity. Now, the diarrhea with, with tucatinib does seem to be less severe than with neratinib. Um, the median time to onset of diarrhea with tucatinib was 12 days. 
uh, median time to resolution was eight days, and the median duration of anti-diarrhea use was only three days uh, in the HER2 Klein publication. And the median duration of anti-diarrheal use in the control arm was only three days as well, despite there being a difference in 30% more diarrhea between the two groups. So it's obviously tough to compare uh, Tuca trastuzumab CAPE to just near a CAPE, um, slightly different patient populations. But uh, some other things to think about with tucatinib, and, and I'm saying this because a lot of people will try to lump tucatinib and neratinib in the same you know bucket as, as HER2 targeting TKIs as well as lapatinib, all right? Uh, so tucatinib inhibits OCT2, MATE1, and MATE2-K, uh, which are renal tran or transport uh, transporters. Uh, now, what we see here is that is actually a substrate for uh, renal transport of metformin. So tucatinib actually increases mat metformin plasma levels by about 48%, as well as increasing creatinine levels by about 32%. Um, while people are on treatment. And the PI says, quote, consider alternative markers of measuring renal function. So like cystatin C would not be affected. That's an important consideration. So tell your pharma friends, especially your AMCARE or endocrine specialists, that if somebody's got diabetes or on metformin, that metformin dose, the AUC is going to go up by about 40%. And that's going to be worrisome to them because if their creatinine goes up, they're going to think that their creatinine clearance has gone down and that may not uh, in fact, it's likely not the case. It's actually a drug, la or really it's a drug creatinine interaction between tucatinib, not a decrease in GFR. It's a really important thing. If you only remember one thing about tucatinib, it's probably that it's going to uh, artificially elevate the creatinine levels that we see uh, in the blood. Uh, tucatinib is also a 2C8 substrate and a 3A4 substrate, so there's some uh, potential uh, drug interactions there. Uh, it's AUC is decreased 50% if you're on rifampin, so drug actions there, but the Another big thing to worry about tucatinib. Actually, if there's two things to remember about tucatinib, it's the increase in creatinine. The first thing to remember is that it is a strong 3A4 inhibitor. It increases the, the area under the curve of midazolam 5.7-fold. By comparison, posaconazole increases the midazolam AUC by 4 to 5-fold. So it's a slightly more potent 3A4 inhibitor than posaconazole. So drug interactions abound everywhere with tucatinib. Um, and there are some other... Uh, you know, minor interactions potentially as a uh, as a moderate 2C8 inhibitor and also inhibits peak like protein, so their interaction with like digoxin and things like that. But a lot of drug interactions with tucatinib. Uh, and just again to reiterate, remember two things about tucatinib. Uh, it's a really potent 3A4 inhibitor, really bad. It's like an azole and a fungal level bad drug interaction standpoint. Uh, and it's going to artificially increase creatinine values in the blood. Okay, so that's that's the bulk of it. That's our breast cancer update for the week. Actually, one other quick breast cancer update that's not related to drug approval. Uh, recently, ASCO put out new guidelines on uh, measuring um, ER positivity, and there's going to be a new category called low ER positive, which is 1% to 10%, which is apparently, under, apparently underrepresented in a lot of our studies, and we don't have good evidence about how effective hormonal therapy is in that group, although we're still going to give them AIs and tamoxifen and stuff. Okay, back to the drug approval show. Uh, on April 10th, um, selumitinib, brand name Kosluga, was approved for um, uh, NF1, which is neurofibro neurofibromatosis 1, which is an inherited uh, disorder caused by uh, an inherited mutation of a tumor suppressor gene that uh, encodes NF1. Um, and basically, these patients end up with a whole bunch of neurofibromas. Uh, and you can Google neurofibroma, Google image, and you'll see what I'm talking about if you don't know. But they're prone to these benign tumors, these neurofibromas along nerves, and 
are also prone to many other cancers. Um, so this approval for selumitinib is for a specific type of neurofibroma called uh, a plexiform neurofib uh, neurofibromas that are inoperable and disfiguring. And again, that happens in about a third. Uh, but selumitinib is a typical MET inhibitor. It's got its typical MEK inhibitor toxicities like fever and, and the concern for ocular toxicity, a decrease uh, potentially in, in uh, ejection fraction, diarrhea, increase in CPK, and increased risk of rhabdo. Um, uh, rhabdo. Um, the, the unique thing about this, besides its approval and setting, is that it uses quite a bit of vitamin E as an excipient or a binder or something that's just kind of thrown in to, to make the physical uh, product. Um, and vitamin E has antiplatelet toxicity. There is a warning in the PI that if you have more of the recommended daily allotment of vitamin E that you could have bleeding because vitamin E has antiplatelet effects. Now, this approval, as you would guess, was based on objective response rate, 66%, which is pretty high, in 50 patients, and it's for uh, patients ages 2 and older. All right, the next one, April 15th. Uh, mitomycin was approved. I know what you're thinking. Mitomycin, no, that's not news. That's been around forever. But this is a, a mitomycin gel, and the brand name is Mitogel. Uh, and it's approved for low-grade upper tract. So we're talking um, above the uretopelvic junction. It's the renal calculus, renal pelvis, okay, uh, urothelial cancer. Uh, it's based on an approval of response rate, um, uh, complete response rate, of 58%, that's a pretty high complete response rate. So 41 of 71 patients had a complete response rate, and the median duration of response had not been reached. Um, if you work in a pharmacy and you're making stuff, it's going to be a nightmare to put this stuff together, it looks like, okay? Just warn you. The dose is 4 milligrams per mil, and it's based on volume of the renal pelvis, uh, as determined by uh, a pilogram. It's administered via a ural catheter or a nephrostomy tube every week for six weeks. Um, and the volume is based on, you know, the, the dose is based on the volume of the renal pelvis, uh, which is uh, four milligrams per mil up to a max of 15 mils or 60 milligrams. Um, what's interesting about this from a, as a pharmaceutic formulation is it, it has uh, reverse thermodynamics. So typical thermodynamics is as you heat something up, it goes from solid to liquid to gas. This is a little bit of the opposite. Um, when it is chilled, it's liquid. So that's how it has to be prepared and administered. It has to be chilled to be administered. And then as it warms up, it turns into a gel and then hangs around in the renal pelvis for a longer period of time to locally uh, deliver mitomycin uh, to the, the urothelial cancer in the renal pelvis. Uh, and then it's just excreted in the urine, uh, you know, as the as it as the gel dissolves over four to six hours. So there's a lot of pharmacy prep. There's a special like freezer block that you can buy to to make this stuff. Um, um, it's not just local mitomycin. There is some systemic uh, contribution here because one third of patients had some myelosuppression, although only three percent grade 3 or 4 cytopenias, uh, and the absorption of mitomycin was about 1% of the C-max of an IV uh, dose of mitomycin. And again, these people are going to have, you know, pretty blue-violet colored urine for about six hours afterwards and need to, you know, be careful where they put their urine so it doesn't get uh, around anyone else. And then the last approval I have to talk about is pimigatinib, which was approved on April 17th, and this was also an accelerated approval uh, for the treatment of locally advanced or metastatic uh, cholangiosarcoma with FGF2 fusion rearrangements. Now, you're thinking, wait a minute, there was already an FGFR inhibitor approved. Yes, that was ertafitinib, that was for urothelial cancer, 
and that was uh, for people with FGFR 2 or 3 fusion rearrangement. So that makes this the second FGFR inhibitor um, that's approved. Now, pemigatinib inhibits FGFR 1, 2, and 3, and probably not 4. These uh, a lot of concentration to inhibit FGF4. As you might have guessed, this is based on an approval of 107 patients. Not a big number. Kind of a big number compared to some of the other ones we've talked about uh, this episode. Uh, objective response rate was 36%. Only 3% of those being CRs. Um, fairly typical Typical, it's a second in its class, but the toxicity profile is consistent with ertafitinib. Uh, of note, these patients need an opth- uh, opth- uh, they need an eye exam by an ophthalmologist up front and then periodically uh, because up to 6% of people can have retinal pigment epithelial detachment. Ugh, scary. Uh, there's also on-target uh, hypo- hyperphosphatemia, so we do expect, do expect the FOS to go up on these people. Unlike with ertafitinib, in which case... Uh, with ertafitinib, you put them on the drug, you measure their FOS, and then you adjust the dose based on their FOS level, what, either up or down. So if they don't have enough of a bump of FOS, you're saying they don't have enough FGFR inhibition, add more drug. That's not the case with pimigatinib. Uh, there are dose reductions and discontinuation criteria and adding phosphate binders based on how high the FOS gets, but you're not dosing based on, you know, say, an incomplete increase in FOS. Um, this also inhibits OCT2 and MATE1, although not as potently uh, as tucatinib because the increase in serum creatinine was only an average of 0.2 milligrams per deciliter and not potent enough to significantly increase the levels of metformin because the PI says didn't significantly increase levels of metformin. Other toxicities of this uh, that are uh, kind of in the same ballpark as ertafitinib, but not exactly the same, uh, are alopecia in 50%. Uh, which was more than ertafitinib. Nail toxicity was 43%, uh, stomatitis 35%, uh, dysquesia 40%. Um, that's it. You know, I'd give you the COVID thought for the week, but we're already at, you know, 25 plus minutes. So, uh, you know, it was great to to, to record and, and hopefully update you on all these busy, busy work by the FDA. Uh, I hope to talk to you again uh, next week. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at FirmDeepNip. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.